Let's pray. Father, we're so in desperate need of you and the work of your Spirit in us. For Father, you know how blind and deaf we are. You know how unable we are to see ourselves unless you search us out. Father, I ask this morning that you would work mightily in our hearts and our minds to help us to see, give us eyes to see, that we truly might understand who we are, that we would see you and your grandeur and holiness and your love, and that we would truly get a clear picture of our need for grace. For Father, we ask this in Christ. Amen. Luke 6, starting at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. How's that for a good morning? (laughs) Those aren't words we like to hear. Have you ever wondered why Jesus would say such a thing? Does it strike you as odd? Does it strike you as strange? I thought he was loving. I thought he's wanting everyone to believe in him and be accepted into his family. And if he was, why would he say that? Why would he pronounce woes like that? Doesn't he realize, doesn't he understand that he's going to hurt his following? If he says stuff like that, that doesn't, that's not good PR. That's just not good marketing. That's not what you do to encourage people to follow you. So the world says. So Jesus goes and he makes a mess. So often. It feels like that. Thanks, Jesus. Those are tough words. I'm not sure what to say. And he leaves it for preachers like us to step up here and and try to make sense of it and try to clean it up. But that's the temptation. Let's clean up Jesus, right? Let's make him say what maybe he's not saying. Or let's domesticate him. Let's make him safe. Let's take the edge off his words so so, you know, everyone will go, oh, okay, I, I get it. I see how that makes so much more sense now. If somehow, as if somehow we can improve on what Jesus said and did. One thing we have to understand is that Jesus is incredibly intentional in what he's doing. And every word is exact. He's precise and he knows what he's doing. He's seeking to accomplish a purpose for which these words will accomplish. And he leaves it at that. And so, it's going to be my difficult job to make clear what sometimes seems confusing. And yet, to not take away from what Jesus is trying to do here, what he's trying to get at. Because certain words have power simply left alone. They have punch. Boom. Woe to you who are rich. Has punch. (laughs) Doesn't it? For you shall... You shall... uh, You have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full. You'll be hungry. Those words have punch. 
And often Jesus speaks in this way for a purpose. He's trying to get at something deeper. And his disciples would often come to him afterwards, after he would say something like this, and say, Jesus, what were you talking about? What does this all mean? We had that read for us this morning in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus says something to the rich young ruler that's confusing everybody. And I love how Jesus works. Because... This, a very similar thing happened because as we heard this morning, the rich young ruler comes to him and, and, and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so what does Jesus do? Well, seeing as I know you, I know what's going on in you. I know you perfectly and I know your heart and I know your self-righteousness and I know everything about you. Let's start with some law. What does the law say? You know? Well, he rattles off the law. Well, heck, that's pretty easy. You, you just, um, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? He goes down and says, no graven image, and you honor your parents, and, you, you know, you do, all, you, you do these things. And Jesus says, okay. Um, and, and, and the guy goes, uh, yeah, well, I've kept these from my youth. Hmm. Wow. You're really something. So, okay, I have one last thing you need to do. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. The text says that he was very wealthy. And, and Jesus was after something and he nailed it. He wanted this man to be confronted with a stark reality of who he was and where he is at before God. He hears those words and he turns around and leaves sad. Now, the disciples encounter this whole situation. Jesus didn't say, hey, wait, wait a second. Hey, what's happening? You know, um, what did you think about what I said? He didn't try to say, say let's work this out. Let's, because I'm very anxious for followers and I'm for you to turn and, and to follow me. Jesus, he just wanders off and Jesus turns around, his disciples said to him, Jesus, they're confused. If, if the rich don't inherit the kingdom of God, who does? How, it's a, how is it possible for anybody to be saved? And Jesus lets him in on something. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And this is, the, this is what they needed to understand, is that this is a work of God. And it, unless this rich man understands and comes to the point where he sees what his idols are or his true loves are, what's really going on inside of him, unless he sees himself, he will see no need of Jesus. The rich young ruler did not understand his desperate need for Jesus. And what he needed is he needed the law more clearly revealed to him. He needed his heart more clearly revealed to him. He needed to understand who he was before this holy God. And as he did, then he would come to Jesus in a little different posture. He would be coming to him quite differently. So here we have this morning, woes. A bunch of woes pronounced. And just before we begin, 
help us to understand what is a woe. Like, what does Jesus mean like woe? Not like woe, horses. It's not like woe is, a, is, a, is sounding an alarm. Woe to you. It's, it's to cause a person to wake up and say, you are in trouble. Deep trouble. A woe is pronouncing the curse of God. There's a curse. You are in, in, in dire straits. It'll be very bad for these people. So Jesus is saying, it'll be very bad for you. I mean, incredibly bad for you. That's what he's meaning when he says, woe. And the first woe is to those who are rich. And once again, Jesus is not necessarily dealing with the physical rich, with those who actually have wealth. In the context in which he said this, he might have been referring to the physically rich who are in his presence because he knows the heart. But the point is rather how one perceives themselves. If one thinks he is rich and he's in need of nothing, but is rather confident about what he can do with his riches, what he can purchase, and what he doesn't have to worry about, do you know what he is? Jesus understands that person is self-deceived. Riches are deceitful because they give the impression that you're secure, that you can do whatever you want, when in fact they are the gift of God that can be taken away like that. They can, you can lose them a lot faster than you gained them. They are like a vapor. And so here Jesus is telling them to understand, woe to you who are rich, for you've, you've received your reward. That's your reward. I hope you enjoyed it. Woe to you. So the per, the, and, and a good example of this is understanding how it's to be understood is, again, that the church in Laodicea that we looked at last week, it becomes a stumbling block. Jesus exposes their foolishness by bringing to light what they, when they said this. They said this. This is what Jesus said they said. We are rich and have become wealthy and are in need of nothing. When in reality, as Jesus puts it, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So the reality is not what you're seeing on the outside. So physically, you are rich and you have things. And because of that, you think and perceive of yourself in a particular kind of way. As someone who has all these things, I'm in need of nothing. I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Things are going just fine. And Jesus says, but you don't understand your true state. Your true state is not that you're rich, but that you're wretched and poor. That's the true state. So Jesus, interestingly enough, to the church in Laodicea, he doesn't tell them to go and sell all that they have. He tells them to repent and buy from him gold refined in the fire, white garments and salve for the eyes, and then they would be truly rich. So in Luke 6, Jesus is saying that it is a woe to those who are rich if they think that what they have is all that they need for their peace, security, and happiness. If one finds comfort, if one finds the the security of life in these riches and puts their trust in them and would be unwilling to part with them, it's a curse that will destroy them. And he says it the way he does, to open the eyes. 
so that the Spirit, as He brings these words like a hammer, the Spirit would open the eyes for people to see and understand their true condition. Who understand that those who are in love with riches, who those who put their trust and confidence in riches, who those who think that money is going to give them what they need, they would see this, see themselves, and then all of a sudden see how wretched and poor they really are. And so that they, once they see how wretched and poor they are, what happens? They go from being the person of woe to the person who's blessed. If we go back up into verse 20, what did he just finish saying? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So the rich person sees, their eyes are open, they, they see how wretched they are, what they've done, how they've loved and trusted and put their comfort and confidence in riches. And then they see how poor and wretched they really are and fall before Jesus. And then he says, blessed are you, blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. Likewise, he goes on to say, woe to those who are full, for you shall be hungry. You know, I don't know about you, but to me, having plenty to eat seems more like a blessing than a curse. It's quite having, having enough to eat so that you're full. That's the blessing of God. But, G, but what Jesus is doing here, once again, is turning everything on its head. He is not, he's wanting them to see their condition, what's really going on. He is saying that it's, a, he's, it's, it's not a blessing to be full. It's not a blessing to have plenty. It's not a blessing to have your fridge stuffed. It's not a blessing to have your pantry overflowing. And we're going, what are you talking about? And if you don't go, what are you talking about? You're not understanding. That's what he's trying to get you to do. What? Uh, he's saying, that's cursed. He says, really, the blessing is when you're hungry. Wow. So what, what could he possibly mean by such a statement? Well, Jesus here is speaking of a fullness and a contentment with who we are and what we have of a fullness and a contentment with who we are and what we have apart from the grace and mercy of God. So if a person is full and content and happy, it's very connected to the person who's, who's rich. These are all connected. If a person is in that state of feeling that way, Jesus says that, that is a bad place to be, full, content, and happy. Not physically, but spiritually. And why do we know that he's... This is basically the point he's driving at. Well, because even if you look at Matthew, as we've talked about last week, Matthew says, blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. Those are the blessed ones. So in contrast to that, who would be the cursed ones? Who would be the ones that he pronounces woe on? Those who do not hunger and thirst for righteousness. So it wasn't bread that they're hungry for but rather a righteousness that they didn't possess of themselves. Because like a hungry person who longs for bread that is not on their table, the hungry soul longs for righteousness that they themselves do not possess. A person who's hungry spiritually looks at their state, understands what's going on, and is hungry to get what they don't have. And what is it they're hungry to get that they don't have? The righteousness and the goodness that they realize they look and hear and they go, 
oh man, desperately wicked and evil. And I desperately need what I don't have. That person is hungry for righteousness. And that person has had their eyes open to see their true state. So if I look at the state of my righteousness, if you look at the state of your righteousness, if I look at the state of my holiness or my personal goodness, or if you look at the state of your holiness and your personal goodness, what should you see? A homeless beggar who's broke. Who is desperately needy. Hungry. Hungry for what? Hungry for a righteousness not my own. Hungry for someone to come and to fill me and give me and put food on my table so that I might eat. But if I justify myself, compare myself with the people who are worse than I, or if I look at my best moments in my life and deceive myself, I don't see myself as wretched and poor and hungry. What do I see myself as? Just fine, fat and happy. So when we're given eyes to see how poor and wretched we really are, we become terribly hungry to be filled. But if our pride, selfishness, lust, covetousness, or hate deceives us, and we start to think that, you know what? All these things that are in us, we, we rename them and we re-identify them and we call them by other names to make them nice and friendly. We're hurting ourselves greatly. One of the best gifts you could ever have is to see yourself for who you really are. To see and understand your poverty, your desperate need to be filled is a gift from God. Have you noticed? Think about this in your Christian life. As time has went on, is there an increase in your understanding of your pride, in the understanding of your selfishness, in the understanding of your self-will, your self-love? I am so very thankful, very thankful that as my days continue, Jesus continues to reveal to me my poverty and absolute need of him. I, and I continue to pray, oh, Lord Jesus, show me, reveal it to me. And what I'm seeing as time goes on, I'm continuing to seeing more selfishness, self-love, self-righteousness, self-will. I want it my way. Pride. Envy. And what do I do when I see that stuff? Do I get hungry for him to fill me? Or do I go and try and do better? Or do I try to rename it? And make it not as bad as it really is. What do I do? Seeing ourself is a blessed state. How do you see yourself? Because one of the things that God will do, either the trials and the sufferings in your life, so you know one of the primary things that happens in that? It will expose in you like nothing else your self-love and your self-will. You don't want God's will for your life. You, it's not, oh Lord, your will be, not my will be done, but yours. Oh no, Lord, I hate your will. Let mine be done. And he will show you that loud and clear. Go through a heavy trial and heavy suffering and you will find you don't like his will. You want your will. 
One of the greatest gifts we can have is to see how hungry and desperate for the food from Jesus we really are. He goes on to say, another woe, woe to those who laugh. That seems kind of strange. Woe to those who laugh, for you shall mourn and weep. Wow. It seems strange to pronounce a woe to those who laugh. It ought to seem strange, right? Isn't laughing a good thing? I sure enjoy a good belly laugh. I like to laugh. Laughing feels good. When you're laughing, it's like, man, this is, this is great. A good, sincere gut laugh where you're just, you know, the belly's full of laughter is just, to me, a wonderful blessing. But Jesus says, no, it's not. I'm like, what? Woe to you. Well, what's he mean? See, in all of this, Jesus is nailing Israel's preconceived ideas of, blessed state, of the blessed state. Like, you got They might have been quiet, but they're in their minds going, "What is he talking about? Everything he's saying is exact opposite of what I could understand the blessed state to be. It doesn't make any sense. Because think about it for a moment. You know what blessed state is? The blessed state, by its very nature, is happy, fulfilled. And so laughing seems to, by its very nature, by its very enjoyment, seems to be the, be the very fulfillment of blessing. Happy is he, joy-filled to overflowing. Is he who's mourning? Don't you know, understand contradiction, Jesus? I, I'm lost. I don't understand what you're saying. So to call a state of being that is apparently blessed, cursed, seems to be confused. But when we realize that Jesus is referring to how we perceive and understand ourselves, it begins to make more sense. If we're happy and laughing about who we are, life is good. Look at my state before God. Look at, you know, if I look at myself before God apart from him, am I laughing and thinking this is good? You know, what did Isaiah do in Isaiah 6? He was the, the priest of God in Israel and he saw the holiness of God and he wasn't laughing. Ha, this is great. You see, you know, the Lord on his throne, highly exalted. Amazing stuff. Cherubim praising him. Look at the glory. Ha, this is wonderful. No. Woe, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. His eyes see the Lord, and he, his laughter turns to mourning as he understands who he is. And you know the beautiful thing, this is why it's so blessed. It's just what Jesus is talking about. It's so blessed to mourn and so cursed to laugh is because when, we're, when we are crushed and weeping, when we're, we understand that we're poor, we're beggars, we're hungry, we're in need, and we come to this place of weeping, understanding who we are, do you know why that's so blessed? Because do you know what Jesus does? Jesus stoops down to you and he says, My child, I love you. Rise up and I fill you. In Isaiah's case, the angel came with the, um, with the coal from, from the altar and touched his lips and cleansed him. 
That's why it's so blessed to be there, because that's where Jesus heals. That's where Jesus binds up. That's where Jesus cleanses. That's where Jesus fills. That's, that's the state. It's a blessed state. So, in Luke chapter 16, which we're going to see not too far from now, is that there's the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And there's a, a parable, a story, that basically depicts this whole situation. Lazarus was poor, beggar, weeping, had nothing. In contrast to the rich man who was rich, fat, happy, had everything. And then in the final judgment, it completely contrasted one another. You know, in regard to a continuous application of this, one of the things we have to understand in the Christian life is that when we laugh is when we've been blessed and raised up by Jesus and he, he pronounces peace on us, then we laugh. But when we sin... We should never laugh about our sin. It's not funny. It's not something we should make light of. If we get ensnared and entrapped in sin and, 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 and we're struggling in sin, it's something that we ought to weep over. It's not something we joke about. It's not something we make light of. It's something we mourn over. Because we know something. Paul has told us in several places, in Corinthians and Ephesians, clearly that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, I, don't, I want, don't want you to be deceived, my brothers, sisters, that if a person is practicing and living in sin, that person will not inherit the kingdom of God. They're delusional. One of the things about Jesus and his people is that he, by the Spirit, is correcting and convicting and showing us our state. So that we would get to the place we would see our sin and we would mourn. We ought to tremble at the woes and warnings of Jesus. And be brought to a state of repentance. And when Jesus lifts us up, then we laugh. But before that we weep. You know, one thing that, that concerns me in the state of the church today is how much we're seeing, I think, a lack of understanding of of what Jesus is doing here. Of pronouncing woe, of declaring woe, of heightening and raising the bar in terms of what of the law of God. We, we're in an age where we talk about the gospel and it's just so much about grace and love and it's just so, so, so often spoken of and love, 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 grace, 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 which is absolutely necessary, but it has no context. And so what happens is if, if, we, if we do not heighten and raise the law as Jesus did and the curses and the woes and the, and the warnings and the danger, the gospel and the grace makes no sense. People all of a start, sudden start believing in Jesus and nothing changes. They don't weep over their sins. They don't see themselves as hungry. They don't see themselves as poor. They don't see themselves as wretched and blind. They don't receive the woe. And so they don't receive the blessing. It's no longer good news to those who weep over their condition, but just plain, simple, good news, even if you remain in your sin. I remember listening to this prostitute tell her story about her relationship with Jesus and her being a Christian. But here's the sad part. She remained in her lifestyle. 
laughing and carrying on as if everything was just fine. Why? She believed in Jesus. Now, of course Jesus would receive, gladly receive a prostitute. But it's the prostitute at his feet weeping and, and, and washing his feet with her tears that he gladly and joyfully extends his, his hands a blessing and says, Peace, my child, I forgive you. And from that goodness and that grace received in that state, they rise up as new and different creatures because he doesn't just forgive them, he fills them with his spirit. He feeds them in a way that they've never been fed in their life. And the thing is, we don't want to see people weep over their sin today. We don't want people to really understand the height and the severity and the woe and the curse of sin because it just seems so harsh or mean, moralistic or legalistic to preach about sin and to allow people to feel it. Because here's the thing, we, look at what Jesus does. He doesn't often, as we're going to go through this whole section on the Beatitudes, if you look at this sermon, this thing ought to slice and dice you to the floor. He raises the bar so high that if you think you can jump it for a moment, you're you're delusional. He's trying to get the people of his people to see their wretched, their poor, their miserable state so they'd understand. And only then will they receive the blessing. Just like the rich young ruler. He's okay to let them walk away because the person does not get who they are. They don't see themselves. You don't see yourselves. Here, try this one. Let me raise the bar a little higher. If you think for a moment that you have not committed adultery, let me help you understand something. If you've ever lusted after a person in your heart, you've committed adultery. That's supposed to sting. That's supposed to create an awareness and help us understand the severity. You say you haven't committed murder. All of us, I'd say, if you've committed murder in here, raise your hand. And none of us would raise our hands because we know know what we mean by murder. Murder means you kill someone. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. If you've hated someone in your heart, you've committed murder. What? Yeah, you thought you were doing well, didn't you? You thought you were, you know, there's several that you could check off. And Jesus says, let me help you understand who you are. Let me help you understand what's going on. And when you do understand and you come to that place of seeing yourself before this three times holy God, you understand sin. You, you look at yourself and you understand your pride, your selfishness, your self-love, your hate of those who, who hate you. You don't love those who hate you. And when you get to that state, all of a sudden it changes everything. And now you become desperate. You become hungry. You, you, start to hear, you start to hear about what Jesus did. And you hear about how he died on the cross for sinners and to, to make them righteous and to give them his spirit. And all of a sudden you fall in love with that. You, you want to cling to the cross. And you've changed forever. That's what happens when the woes of Jesus hit where they're supposed to. They're not hitting you. If you sit here, you feel fine about who you are and what's going on. It's not hitting you. 
And the law needs to be raised even higher. The standard needs to be higher. A person ought to be pricked and understand, whoa. We need to see ourselves. We need to see our self-love. We need to see our pride for what it really is. We need to see our, our stubborn wills for what they are and become hungry and poor, impoverished, and weep. And Jesus will run to us, lift us up, and fill us. And just, you know, if, if it wasn't bad enough, he turns the dial up. This last woe completely, completely hits us right between the eyes. And here, here's why. Look at it. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Woe to you when people speak well of you. Well, I don't know about you, but I like it when people speak well of me. So I'm confused once again. Not only that, but I've read my Bible, and I know Proverbs 16, 7 says that uh, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So I know enough that says that, that honor comes to those who are honorable. And we see in the world that, you know, often, yeah, if we, are be- we have solid characters, often we know that favor comes. So how can... Jesus say this. Well, obviously he isn't referring to a favor that we gain because of our godly character. He isn't referring to um, us being hated because we're jerks. Hey, I want to be this person, so I'm going to be an idiot. I'm going to be a lawbreaker. And I'm a person that becomes hated. No, those who, who are hated because of him, because of their connection to him, it's because you're standing with Jesus. You know, one of the things we have to understand, and this is very important in our current age, is this. More and more in our culture today, a hostility towards Christ and his followers is ramping very quickly. Christians are facing in this country more and more persecution today because more and more people are hating the claims of Christ, hating the claims of his truth. And... They hate the fact that we would say things about certain sins. It's now and increasingly going to become hate speech to call homosexuality sin. To say that we are the ones who, who have the truth and that any other, all of the religions are lies and false is going to get you in big trouble. This country has not known persecution since its inception and it might be the first time where you start standing for the truth and doing what is right you're going to find yourself in trouble look at the business owners down in oregon found themselves in trouble people are starting it's they're becoming vehement about it hating you gnashing their teeth simply why i mean so so we love people and we would, you would, even if you would love a homosexual in all your deeds and what you did, but you call it sin, that's sin, and I, and I cannot call it otherwise. You're in trouble. And so the, what this does, though, is it exposes ourselves, that we love ourselves. We're afraid. We don't consider, if we go back up and we think of the blessing, it says, blessed are you, in verse 22, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the count of the Son of Man. 
He goes beyond that. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Oh, it's so marvelous. Oh, are you kidding me? When people hate, revile me, and are threatening me, and are going to throw me in jail, I don't think of dancing. I think of running. That's scary. I don't like that. And do you know what that exposes in me? I'll tell you what, the thing that's going to be tested more than ever is this. Who do you love? Jesus or yourself? And we can say we love Jesus until we're persecuted for him. And then we'll really find out. Because often, you know, in our lives, when God brings into our lives, what we find is that there is a whole lot of self-love. And we hate it when people don't speak well of us. But he says, woe to you. We want everyone to speak well of us. And he's saying, woe to you when people speak well of you. Are you kidding? And more and more, that's becoming the case. Wow. Jesus is really getting at something here. This one hurts because he's showing me that in in saying this and declaring this, that it's blessed to be reviled and it's a woe to be, be seen as favorable. He says, Dean, do you see how much self love still exists in you? I mean, yeah, it exists. I'm so concerned about what people think about me. I fear what others are going to say about me. I, I, I'm concerned about my reputation. I'm concerned about, about your thoughts of me. I'm concerned about you liking me. I'm concerned. What is that? That's self-love. And so I, we need to have the words pierce us and cut us and expose us and help us to see how much we truly love ourselves. The self-righteousness, the self-will, selfishness, covetousness, lust, pride. We need to see it. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus, by the Spirit, brings hard words to see it, understand it. It's not so you can justify it. It's not so you can candy coat them. It's not so you can tone it all down and make it all nice and make it mean what it doesn't mean and try to make it say something else. It's so that we would see ourselves, understand who we are, and become poor, wretched, uh, blind, and, and in desperate, hungry need for Jesus. You know what's amazing? Is until we really get to this point, we're, we're not useful in the kingdom. Have you ever seen a wild stallion before? It's, been, it, it's not broke. It jumps and twists and bucks and, and it's just gnarly. I mean, the thing is wild to see. It's it just it dancing and prancing and doing its thing, but it's useless to the owner. Absolutely useless. Until it's broke. And once it's broken, it submits itself to the bridle and will submit itself to the master and do what it wills, what he wills or she wills. It's useless. But at the point that it does that, all of a sudden becomes very useful. And in our lives, one thing you're going to see God do is going to see that he brings situations and circumstances into our lives to break us. Break us of ourselves. 
He's going to declare hard words like this to show us ourselves, to break us of ourselves. So we get to the point where we bow our heads and submit our heads to his bridle and says, wherever you wish, Lord, you turn me, I will go. You're my master. You're my Lord. You don't get there until you're broken. What is Jesus doing in you? If you're his, he's breaking you. If if you're his, he's speaking to you. If you're his, by the spirit, he'll allow you to see yourself as you really are and bring you to the place that you need to be. And it's that blessed state of being hungry, poor, wretched, blind, and weeping and looking to him and him only to fill you. That's why. That's why it is blessed. Blessed are you. When you're hungry, when you're poor, when you're weeping, and when everybody hates you because of me, you are blessed because I have done a marvelous work in you. Amen. Father, we're thankful. We're grateful. That you, by your spirit, you do smash the hard places. You bring the woes. You bring your word. You bring your law, and it breaks us. Father, I ask and I plead that you would help us to see ourselves, expose ourselves, that we'd see our blindness, that we'd see our wretchedness, our poorness, our poverty, our hunger, that you would help us to understand who we are and where we're at, that we truly would get that. We're in desperate need, desperate need of Jesus, every day, always. And today, may we see, Father, may we see, have eyes to see, so that we might turn to Jesus with our whole hearts and weep and mourn and cry out and receive the blessing. Amen.